Hi, this is bass player Nathan East, and you are listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is Jerry Jamat, a revered session bass guitarist. His heyday was the late 60s and early 70s when he worked with so many great artists, including Aretha Franklin, Ray Charles, B.B. King, Herbie Hancock, his playing was inspirational to so many bassists, including the great Jocko Pastorius, and to me. And he recently published a memoir called Make It Happen, The Life and Times of the Groove Master, his nickname. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musician guests, Jerry and I are going to do a song fest. You're going to listen to a little bit of a few songs that he played on, and you'll get the backstories, and nobody else does this in podcasts. You also know that I feature a song of mine in every episode, underneath the introduction and at the end. I always try to make it relevant. And in this instance, I've chosen the song 1972 from the album Trippin'. That's by my band Project Grand Slam. I wrote this song to try and capture the groove and the vibe of the early 70s when guys like Jerry Jamat were making it happen. So, Jerry Jermont, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Good to be here, Robert. Appreciate all your work and efforts. Because you have success. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that. So, listen, Jerry, I got to ask you the question. What was it like working with Aretha? Tell me about that. That was heaven, man. That was one of the best. You know, talk about dreams come true. You know, popping, following an artist as a listener. As a fan, you know, for many years before she came to the public eye, when she was on Columbia, I would listen to her. Morshiga, the DJ in New York, would play her on the jazz stage. I'm a jazz, primarily a jazz musician. So that was my thing, entree into music, which is a whole nother story. But it's all that's in my book. If you want the inside dope is in the book, make it happen. But working with her was like really... Um, Something I had looked forward to and didn't think was going to um, happen because she was kind of nestled in the um, Atlantic Muscle Shows thing. They had her set in and she had had several hit records. You know, you usually get a crew, you you know, you say with that crew. And it was a number of years. And um, out of the blue, Jerry Wexler called me to have me come down to observe a session. He said, you might play, you might not, but I think I'm going to need you. Once I got there at 10 o'clock in the morning, I said, yeah, Jerry really knows something. <laughs> they do need me. <laughs> so, at any rate, it was a dream working with her. Um, it was really fascinating to um, meet her then and then continue to work with her. Three years later, I went on tour with her with King Curtis, and that's something I didn't do. I didn't like to travel because you, as a session musician, once you leave town, people think you're gone forever and they don't call you. So I kind of kept everything on the down low. 
And I took the job to go on to do the Fillmore thing in 71. Curtis called me in 70. And then again, ironically, I hadn't seen her again until 43 years later. <laughs> she called me to do a Letterman show. So we've had quite a history of working together. And just being with her was a job I would never turn down. I mean, once I get a call from her, it was like, I just got to, you know, yeah, I'll be there, you know, wherever, you know. That's amazing. So it's been, um, that was one of my um, best moments in uh, my professional career. All right. Normally, I don't do this, but you played on one of her great, great hits that I love called Think. So we're going to play that right now underneath. Tell me a little bit about that. Oh, that's 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 what <laughs> that's why they needed me. <laughs> I got into the, the groove, huh? You know, they didn't. They were fumbling around trying to make some kind of um, rhythm and blues thing out of it. And session started at ten, and by one o'clock they were they broke for lunch. And then Jerry Russell said, "Jerry, go in there and see what you can do," and that was it. Fantastic groove that you created on that. That the whole record was just a magnificent record. It really, it really was. The guys, Tommy Cogbill was so supportive. I mean, uh, once I started playing, he jumped on the guitar. I started playing what I called bebop bluegrass. <laughs> you find the, the little line he plays that just runs through the song. It was this um, wonderful day. Everything was so happy that they got it done because they've been laboring over. Usually, when you get a song like that, you usually pass on and go to the next song. But then they stayed on that song for three hours and couldn't get it done. And from that point on, I stayed in the session we called, we recorded Say a Little Prayer after that and House at Jackville and a bunch of other stuff that you see in the movies. So it was really the beginning of our uh, relationship that went on for, you know, for the rest of our life, basically. All right. I want to talk about one of those songs because you sent me I Say a Little Prayer. Tell us a little bit about that one. Well, interestingly enough, I had learned, I loved this song because it had that little jazz influence with the diminished scale going on with the horns playing, the little cute things. And there was really no, really no significant bass on it. It was, you know, Temp playing the parts. It was very orchestrated, you know, Burke Backrack. And Paul Griffin was playing the piano, uh, which was great. But um, I had learned the song because of the odd little time things. And, you know, along the way, you pick up things off the radio. And I very rarely listen to the radio. But I was, Dion, I was a Dion fan, a fan of Dion. I loved all her music. So naturally, I'm going to follow what she did. And Aretha did also. So we got to the, um, the studio. They, the next song was, let's do that. 
And so I knew the song already. They did it in a different key. Uh, and Aretha had already worked it out with her, and, you know, with, with Sissy and the girls prior to the session, obviously, because everything was done live. They had all these parts figured out what they were going to do. This was on the agenda. But they had to get to that first long thing to go on with the session. So once that was out of the way, we got into the rest of the things they had planned to do. And that was one of them. And it was just worked out great. Everything was just live on the spot. Put the play and the girls were singing behind us. At the same time, Reefa would sing. Everything happened simultaneously. I mean, those days, that's how things happen. Yeah, I can imagine. Now, let me ask you a question, because I want to get this straight. So you played on Aretha's version of that song. Did you also play on Dionne Warwick's version? No, I didn't. I didn't. So it was the Aretha version. It's a Reefer version, yes. And All it's significantly right. different because, you know, Dion is like, I find I listened to it the other night to see the comparison between what we have been listening to for year, for a whole year. It was number one hit. And then what we did on the spur of the moment, well, for me, it was on the spur of the moment. <laughs> but I really had planned to do the song. <laughs> and so I just gave it the bottom that I had heard that was missing that I heard when with her interpretation of it. Because if you listen to the original recording, the bass is very light. It's very orchestrated. It's mostly attempts playing a lot of, you know, what you consider the bass notes are very harm harmonized differently. So I just gave it a very simple harmonic foundation that gave it a sustained groove throughout the whole song. So most of the time when you got hired and you, you're a session guy, so you're going in there to play, you know, whatever they have in front of you at that moment, did they kind of leave it up to you as to figure out what you wanted to play? versus having it all written out and orchestrated. How did that work? Well, that's how I started with everything written. At first, I started doing demos. You know, then they started doing, I was doing sessions, commercial sessions, jingle sessions, films, and recording sessions that um, A&R, everything had to read the music. And um, after a while, they um, they realized that what I would do, I would like yeah, play the ink at first, then I would, you know, when the red light came on, <laughs> I tried to do my thing. So <laughs> I knew they wouldn't stop me then. <laughs> so <laughs> after a while, they started saying, well, just Jerry, play whatever you, you know, some sessions they just come in and just give me a blank piece of paper, basically. I mean, a lot of sessions went like that. But, um, but once they found that I had that skill, and ironically, in those days, they hired jazz musicians to play and make records anyway because they were flexible. And if something was written, they could immediately figure out how to change it on the spot and make, you know, bring the music to life. So it was really just something that I was just accustomed to doing all the time. It was not a big stretch for me. Well, listen, it worked out. You know, I know Jocko Pastorius was a big fan of yours and Jocko is, you know, just one of the greatest of all time. And you have this version of one of his songs called The Chicken. That's a live version that I'm playing right now. me a little bit about that because that was so much fun to listen to oh we had fun with kid anderson up there in um san jose and dmar and crew of um there's some great musicians up there in the bay area he pulled me out to this come you know he was a fan of mine 
And um, there's this great little studio, and we go up there, I go up there and record all the time, and we just hooked up a little, like, you know, Jerry Jamont and Friends gig on the spur of the moment and at, at Lou's Barbecue. So we had a like, this, this is fun making, you know, playing live music is nothing like it because you connect with the audience and you get ideas, you get inspired. And that's how I started, you know, playing live, you know, playing for people. Um, that was, that's the essence of um, the communication between the artist and the, um, the, the, the artist and the well, society and the audience, basically. You know, now there's artists and society, but then there's just the, you know, musicians and the audience. And so that's how I got my start at a very early age. So uh, I was accustomed to like, you know, getting into the vibe of the people and, you know, employing that within the, in the context of my work and imagining what they'd be doing if I'm playing a certain thing in the studio, how they would react to it. I mean, all these things come into play when you're um, creating something that's meaningful. Yep. You've played with so many greats. I have to ask you about a couple of others. Tell me about B.B. King. Oh, do a, the you know quintessential gentleman. He was like so you know he loved his fans. He was respectful of the musicians. Um, he was a joy to play with. Um, he, one of the coolest people you want to meet. You know he would he he never see him get upset. He'd have a way of just verbally getting things or give you that look that something was going on. And this is I heard from the musicians that work with him all the time. I was fortunate to um, be part of his resurgence in the um, late sixties. Uh, when he wanted to change his music, he contracted, he got Herb Lavelle to, um, well, Bim Sims that got the, her called Herb to get the musicians together to play his music. And I was accustomed to playing his music um, with Ray Shinnery many years before that. And we would have a play with um, Honey Boy was the drummer, Leo Morris was the drummer. And so we always funk up his music, Leo, Ray's music, and he was a Jamaican who had a real heavy Jamaican brogue. And when he sang the blues, he sounded just like B.B. King. He sounded just like B.B. King. So, <laughs> All right. Did B.B. have Lucille with him when he played with you? He, oh, for sure. He had the whole, you know, everything he needed, he had with him. And it's been his, his legal pad of, of lyrics. And we just vibed up whatever he sang, he played. And I would just change whatever he played as a triplet into an eighth note feel, basically. So if he's playing swing, I'm playing a samba, basically. And if he's playing third triplets, I'm playing 16th notes. So I've had developed that formula from the first album I worked with him in the summer. So as time went on, uh, he got comfortable playing with us. And um, he just, you know, he it worked. It just clicked, you know, between my interpretation of his music and his steadfast, you know, interpretation he was doing, he was very focused, very easy. And he was very um, workable in that sense. He was very amenable to you know, change. Fantastic. Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. As you know by now, I'm a musician, too. I've released 13 acclaimed albums, including a Billboard number 1, and I've had millions of video views and streams. I infuse my music into the podcast in several ways. In each episode, I feature one of my songs underneath the introduction and at the end, and I always try to make that song relevant somehow to my guest. I also regularly write and record new music, and I release all of my new music via the podcast, 
to my audience consisting of thousands of listeners from 200 countries. It's like I'm performing a concert on a worldwide basis. If you haven't done so yet, I invite you to check out all of my music and my band, Project Grand Slam, by going to the band's website, projectgrandslam.com and at the pgsstore.com. You can also find all of our videos on YouTube and you can stream our music on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming services. By the way, the song you're hearing underneath my voice right now is called Metro Shuffle. It's from the Project Grand Slam album, The PGS Experience, and it features the great Mindy Abair on saxophone. It's become my go-to theme song for the podcast. As always, I want to thank you for listening to the podcast and to my music, and we'll see you in the next episode. All right, I got to ask one more. Ray Charles, okay, one of the greats. What was it like with him? Well, that was really, an, you know, that was a reefer's fault. She, she, orchestrated, <laughs> she, she orchestrated that. That was a surprise to me. I've been a Ray Charles fan all my life, you know, and um, just to have him appear on stage in the middle of a song and um, have to make up a song within a song <laughs> with him, <laughs> you know, and inspire him and push him. It was really uh, just an honor to be, you know, under those circumstances. Fantastic. All right. I want to go to another song of yours that you gave to me, Higher and Higher. Tell me a little bit about that. Oh, that's that's a remake. I started this project in 1980. I was involved in a project in 1980 with Arlen Ruff and Tucker Smallwood to um, recreate Robert Johnson's music as if he was alive at that particular point. This is way before the Columbia stuff came out. And um, that's where I met Arlen, and we kind of bonded at that particular point. And we made a decision we are going to make a record doing super soul all hits at some particular point from the 60s and 70s. Now, this is in 1981 when we're making this plan. Okay, so finally, <laughs> we got the call in 2022 to, um, we're going to do it. We're going to do the super soul love thing. So um, he got his, um, the singer from, what country is in Africa? Um, oh, well, I forget the country he's from. But he's a um, great singer, Mukamari, to um, just um, bring this music back to life, much like we did with the Robert Johnson music. And so we made a bunch, a series, an album of covers of basically um, Aretha stuff, uh, Ray Charles stuff, Jackie Wilson. It's called Super Soul Sessions. So that was one of the highlights of it. 
um, that version of it and taking that taking that track to another level. I'm really proud of what we did with that. We did the Thrillers going also. We also yeah. did Memphis Soul Stew. <laughs> so, got them all worked in there. Everything we got it all in there. You know, <laughs> good for you. All right, let me hear about this book of yours, this uh, memoir. Make it happen: the life and times of the Groove Master. Well, that's how you know, Robert. Um, <laughs> that's something that we should all take a shot at doing at some point in our lives. Because you've had quite a story, you should think about doing yours. But I had it was really hard for me to do it because I had to try to remember things I had worked on for many years trying to forget, basically. So it was, <laughs> <laughs> sometimes it hurt. A lot of times I laughed. But it was a great process to go through. And this highlights the things, the struggles I went through. You know, I, I would think you're right about that. When you're writing a memoir, you got to remember dates and you got to remember names and all of that. And as you get older, oh, that's the hardest thing in the world, right? Believe <laughs> me. Yeah, I had I had so many mistakes in there. There was one point where I had a mistake in there. And I really found out as I was getting the book published that I had the thing, the story all backwards. I had it all wrong. What I remember was basically, I remember things like placeholders, you know, who could have been there? You know, this could have been the person there, blah, blah, blah. But then I found out just recently that the actuality of the Atlantic session roles were uh, published. And I had seen them before at another time, but not in this form. And I didn't look at this particular session. And I found that I was completely wrong about my remembrance of what happened in 1968. <laughs> You know what? The good news is nobody's going to care, okay? They want to hear what you have to remember. Yeah. That's all that counts. But ironically, both versions made it into the book. <laughs> but it works. It kind of works out smoothly where it goes from the beginning of my imagination, my remembrance to actually, actually who was actually there and how much you can actually forget in the heat of the moment, the excitement of having something spectacular occur, and then walk away from it, not even remembering what happened. Like, because music comes through us. A lot of things you play, I don't remember what I'm gonna, what I played. You know, it's like it came through me, it's done, go on to the next thing. And so it's always been that way. So I can understand why I could forget that monumental session and who was actually there. But it's, it's just interesting in writing memoirs how these things occur. Yeah. And look, you were creating on the spot and it was a whole new era in music. I mean, that's the thing. It, it It's not like that stuff had been going on for decades or something. You guys were creating it right then and there. Yeah. So, you know, that's what counts. You still do. <laughs> Fantastic. Are you still doing sessions? I still do sessions. I'm on my way to um, Clinton, Mississippi right now to do a performance with um, Vastai Jackson, a great musician. A uh, wonderful musician who I've wanted to play with for so long. He's actually one of my disciples. And it's just wonderful playing the music that I inspired and then putting my take on it now 50 years later, basically. So it's like um, these kind of rep thing, opportunities present themselves to me, um, I find, you know, quite often, especially now after written my, writing my book, I finally kind of actually have to promote it and get it out there and talk about my past and the things I went through. And I realized in writing the book that I'm just another one. I could have titled the book and just another one, basically, when you start looking at the things that you go through. and But everybody goes through the same thing. It's called life. Yep. And we have to live it you know, to the fullest and get the most out of what we have and try to offer and to make a change to society and make a better world in the process. Words of wisdom, all right? Make it happen. The life and times of the Groove Master. We have been speaking here 
with Jerry Jamont, one of the greatest bass players of all time, a guy that has defined an era in the bass with so many great musicians. Jerry, I want to thank you so much for being on this podcast. You're quite welcome, Robert. Listen, good luck with you, and thank you for the, for having me, and uh, we'll, we'll keep this going, okay? My pleasure. My real pleasure. All right. We're going to listen now to that song that started off the episode. It's my song called 1972. I want to thank you all for listening, and we will see you in the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com and at thepgsstore.com. 